This is Kale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio, and of course, the Relevant Radio mobile app. I want you guys to open up your Bibles right now to Romans chapter 8. We're going to keep going with our explanation of this chapter. For a lot of people, it's their favorite chapter in the whole Bible, and certainly their favorite chapter in Romans, you could say. And don't forget that up until this point, St. Paul has been talking about the three S's, the Spirit, Sonship, and Suffering. Now, he mentions the Holy Spirit 18 times in this chapter alone. You think he's trying to tell us something? You bet. We need the Spirit's help to live the Christ life on this earth. And then, of course, Sonship, and that really has to do with divine filiation. Of course, daughters of God as well. We are children of God in Christ, and it really matters for us. The revelation of God as Father, it's so unique to the Christian faith, which of course is rooted in Judaism, and the Old Testament does talk about this somewhat implicitly, and it does mention it explicitly a couple of times, but Jesus really reveals God as our Father. Our Father, of course, that's how the Lord's Prayer starts off. And then the last S is suffering. And this is really the transition point as we look into these next few verses here in Romans chapter 8. So let's pick up the text right now in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And St. Paul has just got done, by the way, in, in verse 17, talking about how we need to suffer with him, with Christ, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And we spoke in the last episode about how that completely obliterates the heretical health and wealth gospel which has been so popular in North America in recent decades. But let's start now with verse 18. St. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning with labor pains together until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, with sighs too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts of men knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay, let's stop here at the end of verse 27. Of course, the very next verse is one of the most famous in the whole Bible, Romans 8.28. I want to spend a little bit more time on that one, so we'll save that. But let, let's, let's look back at verse 18 and 19 here. When St. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for what? The revealing of the sons 
of God. And of course, the daughters of God as well. What is that word that St. Paul uses here? In verse 19, when he says, revealing the, son, the revealing of the sons of God, it's the revelation of the sons of God. Actually, in Greek, it's the word apocalypsos. And what does that really mean? It means unveiling, it means revelation. That's why in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it's it's called the Apocalypse. And there are many apocalypses, if you will, uh, in the history of Judeo-Christian works. But of course, not all of them are scripture, but this is an apocalyptic book. It's part of apocalyptic literature. And we did a whole series on Revelation, but that, that's the word that he's using here. It's the Apocalypse here. The revelation of the children of God, the unveiling of the children of God, very much like a bride unveiled for her husband at a wedding, the revealing, and the whole creation is waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ on the last day. He's going to reveal himself to the creation once again in his return. But also we have here the revelation of the sons of God, the the daughters of God, what we will be, will be made known. And you could say also, as Brant Petrie says, that the transfiguration of Jesus was kind of like this. It was an apocalypsis, if you will. It was a type of unveiling. The glory of Christ was made manifest. Uh, the inner glory was allowed to shine forth, if you will. That, that's certainly true here. And really what's, what, what this is touching on in chapter 8 is something called eschatology. That's another $5 theological word. What does that mean? eschatology. It has to do with the eschaton. It has to do with the last things, the study of the last things. And you know that in the Catholic tradition, there are four last things that we talk about. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. There's actually a fifth last thing. What could that be? Well, is it purgatory? Mm, No, because purgatory, don't forget, is not permanent. Purgatory is not eternal. When Christ returns, the new heaven, the new earth is going to be set up, but there's not going to be any purgatory. Purgatory will be emptied. It's the mudroom of heaven. Everybody who's in purgatory is going to heaven. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Well, scholars talk about the fifth gospel. There's, of course, the four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What's the fifth gospel? It's not the gospel of Thomas. A lot of Heretical folks want you to think that. That's not a legit gospel. St. Jerome said the fifth gospel is not a book. It's a place. It's the Holy Land. In fact, he lived there. He was a great biblical scholar, translator of scripture, lived in Bethlehem, is buried there. And he said, really, like when you go to the Holy Land, and many of you have been on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, I'd love to take you there someday. You see how the Bible comes alive. When you walk in the footsteps of Jesus, you get it in a fresh new way. It adds a different dimension. 3D, if you will. You know, it, it, It's all coming alive. 4D, HD. And so just like that, the, the fifth last thing is not something. It is somewhere. It's a place. It's the new creation. It's the new heaven. It's the new earth, which comes down out of heaven. And so... Where are we going? What is our destiny? Where is our destiny? This is the new creation. In most people's conception of heaven, let's face it, it's a little bit like one of the old Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. I don't know if you've seen them. 
you know, what's heaven like? It's puffy clouds, angels strumming their harps. Oh, you know, the only physical object maybe in heaven is that bagel with Philadelphia cream cheese on it. It's a disembodied, ethereal existence. But that is not the Catholic view. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We say this in the Apostles' Creed. And so this is why St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Verse 23, this is the resurrection of the body. And the catechism, it's really interesting. There's a section in the catechism that explains this very clearly, this new creation. And it actually draws on, on this passage that we just read from Romans chapter 8. So let, let's take a look at it together here. Open up the catechism if you have it there. If you don't have it, that's okay. I will read this to you, starting with paragraph 1042. And the next few paragraphs after that, it's, it's a beautiful section in the catechism, which really sheds some light on what Paul is saying. It's the hope of the new heaven and the new earth. So let's look at paragraph uh, 1042. The catechism says, At the end of time, the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. After the universal judgment, the righteous will reign forever ever with Christ, glorified in body and soul. The universe itself will be renewed. And then it gives a little quote from one of the documents of Vatican II, which is Lumen Gentium, the light of the nations. It's the document on the church. And here's what it says. The church will receive her perfection only in the glory of heaven. When will come the time of the renewal of all things? At that time, together with the human race, the universe itself, which is so closely related to man and which attains its destiny through him, will be perfectly reestablished in Christ. So there's going to be a recapitulation. There's going to be a reestablishment of all of creation in Christ. All right, next paragraph here in the Catechism, paragraph 1043. Sacred Scripture calls this mysterious renewal, which will transform humanity and the world, new heavens in a new earth. Wow, there it is right there. And by the way, this is mentioned in Scripture as well, in the, in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. It's one of the places you can find it. Peter writes, According to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then, of course, also, don't forget, the book of Revelation mentions this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. John the Revelator writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, it's interesting because in Hebrew thought, the sea is kind of the locus of evil and everything that causes people to stumble, all the, the monsters come out of the, the beasts come out of the sea. Jesus calms the storm on the sea. It's his mastery of all things. So it's important to keep that in mind as well. So back to paragraph 1043 in the Catechism. It will be, it says, the definitive realization of God's plan to bring under a single head all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Okay, let's pick up the Catechism again, paragraph 1044. It says, in this new universe, the heavenly Jerusalem, God will have his dwelling among men. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. And that's from Revelation 21, verse 4. Next paragraph, 1045. For man, for humanity, this consummation will be the final realization of the unity of the human race, which God willed from creation and of which the pilgrim church has been in the nature of sacrament. Those who are united with Christ will form the community of the redeemed, the holy city of God, the bride, the wife of the lamb. She will not be wounded any longer by sin, stains, self-love that destroy or wound the earthly community. The beatific vision in which God opens himself in an inexhaustible way to the elect will be the ever-flowing wellspring of happiness, peace, and mutual communion. That sounds pretty good to me. One of the things the Catechism says here, of course, is that, unfortunately, the reality of the church on earth is sin. We are, we are sinners. The church is made up of sinners. It's a hospital for sinners, as many saints have noted. And so this idea of sin, stain, self-love, that's something that we all have to fight against. It's not a perfect community, humanly speaking, but it will be, of course, in the new heaven and the new earth. I love that. Let's look at paragraph 1046. For the cosmos, Revelation affirms the profound common destiny of the material world and man. And this is where the Catechism quotes specifically the part of Scripture that we just read in Romans chapter 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God in hope because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travailed together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, of course, we are adopted as children of God in baptism. But the fullness of this, we don't have the, the full inheritance yet till we get our resurrection body, that, that's for sure. And I can't resist, uh, you, you can read this whole section yourself, but the next couple of paragraphs are also really interesting too. In paragraph 1048, it says, We know neither the moment of the consummation of the earth and of man, nor the way in which the universe will be transformed. The form of this world, distorted by sin, is passing away, and we are taught that God is preparing a new dwelling and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, in which happiness will fill and surpass all desires of peace arising in the hearts of men. And that's a, another quote from Vatican II, from Gaudium et Spes, Joy and Hope. And then just one last quote here, paragraph 1049, it says, Far from diminishing our concern to develop this earth, the expectancy of a new earth should spur us on, for it is here that the body of a new human family grows, foreshadowing in some way the age which is to come. That is why, although we must be careful to distinguish earthly progress clearly from the increase of the kingdom of Christ, such progress is a vital concern to the kingdom of God insofar as it can contribute to the better ordering of human society. And again, that, that also comes from Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes. So this whole idea of the fact that there is going to be a new heaven, a new earth, a new creation, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care for this current creation because, as, as the Catechism says, it is here that the body of a new human family grows. Of course, there is no procreation in eternity. So the, the when souls come into this world, of course, when they're conceived by their human parents, God infuses the immortal soul. We're kind of populating, the future population of heaven is dependent on 
marriage here on earth, right? And the work with souls that we do is very, very important. Getting people to convert to the truth of Jesus Christ is absolutely imperative. And uh, people talk about Pope Francis and his concern for the environment as if he's the only pope who ever talked about this. But he's not. Pope Benedict also talked about care for our common home, the earth. So did John Paul II. And so we do need to be good stewards of this creation because it's not going to be thrown out. It's going to be transformed. That's the important thing to remember. And so God has created us to be stewards of everything that we're we're entrusted with here, our bodies, our souls, those of others, and this, this world in which we live. We're to take care of it. And that's for sure, because the seeds of eternity are certainly there, too. So, our bodies have a future. That's why we should take care of them now. They're going to be resurrected. We need to live well in them now, live moral lives. This world has a future as well. That, that is definitely a sure thing. Okay, now one, one interesting point here as well that I want to, that I want to, uh, that you probably noted when we read this passage here. This idea that the Spirit intercedes for us. It's pretty incredible to think about this. The Spirit praying for us with sighs too deep for words in verse 26. Very similar to John Paul II again. People who were able to see him pray in person, who attended his private masses, who were in his private chapel, he would go up on his kneeler before the Blessed Sacrament and he would pray for the world, for the church. And he would outwardly groan. I mean, it was just audible. It was people who heard it were kind of shocked. But I think this was just an example of the weight of the world being on his shoulders as Pope, this groaning. So when Paul says the spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words, it could be translated as groanings. And, and this is what Jesus did as well, by the way, in the gospel. In uh, one place you can read this in Mark chapter 7. Uh, Jesus, in fact, um, there's a healing miracle here that takes place. I just want to look this up for you. This is in Mark chapter 7. Ah, yes, here it is. In verse 31, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, through the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to lay his hand upon him. And taking him aside, from the multitude privately, he put his fingers into his ears and spat and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And this is the same word, the, the groaning, and said to him, Ephatha, which is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And he charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And it's kind of a sacramental healing as well. He spat and touched his tongue. Why did he do that? Well, he can use the material creation to bring about healing, both physical and spiritual. Um, Amazing. Just amazing stuff. So the groanings of prayer and sighs too deep for words. Wow, gotta leave it here. We've run out of time, but don't forget, we have more in this episode of The Faith Explained. We're going to open up right now the Q&A mailbag. Okay, as we open up The Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I want to remind you once again, you can send me your questions. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com, and you can find me on the X app at 
Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And today's question comes to me via email from Christine in Rhode Island. And she is listening to The Faith Explained on Apple Podcasts. And I want to remind you, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please give the show a rating and a review. And an honest review, whatever you think of the show. It helps people to find us and it helps people to discover relevant radio. So let's uh, see Christine's question here. She writes, Hi, Kale. When I read the Gospel of Luke, I don't understand why Zechariah is censured by the Archangel Gabriel, but Mary is not. Why is this? Okay, that's a, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that, Christine. And of course, uh, this happened, of course, uh, in Luke's Gospel in uh, chapter 1. There's really two enunciations in Luke. There's the enunciation of of Gabriel to Mary, uh, telling her that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah. But before that, there's an enunciation of Gabriel to Zechariah, the priest, who is, of course, the father of John the Baptist. And when Gabriel appears to him, he's on duty in the temple. It had felt to him by lot to be on duty in the temple. And so he's doing that, and Gabriel appears in the sanctuary. (laughs) Wow. That's, that's, uh, that's an incredibly shocking sight. So he explains to Zechariah, hey, your wife Elizabeth in her old age is going to conceive. Now, this is a natural. This is not uh, uh, like the virginal conception of Jesus. No, no. This is in, in the, the course of marriage, even though they're well beyond childbearing years, that Elizabeth is going to have a son. And of course, this is John the Baptist. But let's pick up the text here in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he made signs to them and remained dumb. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So what is the difference between Mary asking Gabriel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And what uh, Zechariah asked Gabriel? Well, The church fathers and biblical interpreters through the centuries have always said that Our Lady did not doubt the angel's words. She was simply asking for more clarification. She's kind of asking follow-up questions. But Zechariah's doubt was more fundamental. He just did not buy it at all. (laughs) It's kind of funny how Gabriel answers him. uh, Because in a sense, Gabriel doesn't really answer the question. But Zechariah should have known better. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Okay, I stand in the presence of God. I'm one of the archangels. All you need to know is I'm Gabriel. If you don't trust me, who would you trust? But there's something deeper in play here as well. It's really interesting because of all people, Zechariah should have known better when dealing with Gabriel. Because the one of the... <laughs> In fact, I think the only time Gabriel is actually talked about in the Old Testament is in the book of the prophet Daniel. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, it's really interesting, and uh, scholar Edward Sree points this out, that in Daniel 9, 
He's praying that God will show mercy on his people and bring an end. Don't forget, they're in exile. Uh, foreign oppressors are, are just being incredibly uh, cruel to God's people. And so Gabriel appears as Daniel is praying. When does this happen? At the hour of the evening sacrifice. And that's exactly when, by the way. Zechariah would have been offering incense in the temple when Gabriel appeared to him. That's really interesting. So Luke is, is really very skillful in pointing this out, this uh, allusion to the Old Testament. And so what happens to, to Daniel is that Gabriel essentially gives him good news and bad news. So what's the bad news? Well, there was going to still be some suffering in exile under pagan nations for quite a while to come, but there will come an end to this time. And God was going to send the Messiah, and he's called the anointed prince. And that's what Messiah means, the anointed one, to bring an end to this, to bring an end to all sin, atone for the sins of the people. And then there's going to be what? Everlasting righteousness and all of these prophecies about the Messiah will be fulfilled. Now, you can read about this yourself in Daniel chapter 9. So, that is part of the deal, I think, why Gabriel says to Zechariah, I am Gabriel. Think about the last time that you read about me in the Old Covenant. It's really interesting. The parallels are unmistakable. The parallels between Daniel 9 and what's going on at the age, the dawn of the Messiah. Because Zechariah is doing what? He's praying on behalf of the people of Israel. He's offering incense in the temple just like Daniel. And Zechariah is also praying at the same time, the hour of the temple sacrifice. And the same exact angel appears in both cases, Gabriel, the archangel. So this is huge, 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 huge. And Zechariah certainly had a lot of time to think about this. Uh, if he didn't realize it right away, as Edward Sree says, he kind of went on a silent retreat, forced <laughs> by Gabriel uh, to really think, and really ponder this. But but it's, it's really good news for the people because the long suffering of the people of God is coming to an end. And what a privilege that the Zech Zechariah's own son, John the Baptizer, is going to be key in the ministry of Jesus, the forerunner. Wow. Preparing the people for the anointed one, Messiah Jesus. So that's a great question from Christine in Rhode Island. Once again, if you have a question for me on the Faith Explained program, I want to encourage you to email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Another way to get your question to me is by following me on the X app on social media, formerly known as Twitter, of course. And my handle there is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. So appreciate everyone listening to the Faith Explained show. Once again, if you've missed an episode, please download the free number one Catholic app, the Relevant Radio app, and you can access the archives. Uh, we've got some great updates coming to the app, so now's the time to get in on this. If you haven't downloaded it already, you can get all episodes of the Faith Explained. You can also share them. There's a handy share feature. You can share them with friends, family, anybody you come across. Spread the good word of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist here at Relevant Radio, to bring Christ to the world through the media. Join me later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. And until next time, may God bless you. Have a great day. Peace.